Harper Audio presents Barbarians at the Gate, written and read by Brian Burrow and John Hellyer. Copyright 1990 and 2003 by Brian Burrow and John Hellyer. Production copyright 1990 and 2007, HarperCollins Publishers. Barbarians at the Gate, The Fall of R.J.R. Nabisco, by Brian Burrow and John Halyard. Until the fall of 1988, Ross Johnson's life was a series of corporate adventures in which he would not only gain power for himself, but wage war on an old business order. Under that order, big business was a slow and steady entity. The Fortune 500 was managed by company men, junior executives who worked their way up the ladder and gave one company their all and senior executives who were corporate stewards, preserving and cautiously enhancing the company. Johnson, though, was to become the consummate non-company man. He shredded traditions, jettisoned divisions, roiled management. He was one of a whole breed of non-company men who came to maturity in the 1970s and 80s, a deal-driven, nomadic lot. They said their mission was to serve company investors, not company tradition. They also tended to handsomely serve themselves. But of all the non-company men, Ross Johnson cut the biggest profile. He would come, in fact, to be the very symbol of the business world's roaring 80s. And he would climax the decade by launching the deal of the century, scattering one of America's largest, most venerable companies to the winds. The man who would come to represent the new age of business was born in 1930 at the depth of an old one. Frederick Ross Johnson was raised in Depression-era Winnipeg, the only child of a lower middle-class home. Unlike his father, who hadn't completed high school, Ross Johnson wanted to be a college man, and he took the crosstown bus each day to Winnipeg's University of Manitoba. He was average inside the classroom, but excellent out of it. President of his fraternity, varsity basketball, and honors as outstanding cadet in the Canadian version of ROTC. Upon graduation, Johnson plunged into the middle levels of a string of Canadian companies, where he would muddle along for nearly 20 years with little distinction. It was in his expense accounts, though, that Johnson's real creativity shone. By combining his flair for spending with his gift for flattering older men, Johnson moved steadily up the corporate ladder. Yet at age 32, Ross Johnson was still a nobody. He was making just 14000 a year. Landing as a middle-level bureaucrat at T. Eaton, the big Canadian department store chain, Johnson found a mentor, a man named Tony Peskett. Peskett encouraged him to indulge his natural proclivity for thumbing his nose at authority. When Peskett fell out of favor, Johnson once more jumped ship, this time landing at a Toronto company named General Steelworks. But by the early 1970s, Ross Johnson was 40 years old and still hadn't run his own show. When a headhunter offered him that chance, he leapt at it, jumping this time to become president of the Canadian arm of an American food company, Standard Brands. Johnson found Standard Brands hopelessly outdated, and he hit it like a hurricane. In his first year, he bounced 21 of the top 23 executives. And to replace them, he looked for the kind of free-spirited young men he'd attracted throughout his career, a growing band of merry men. His confidence building, Johnson settled into a team that would endure for 15 years, staying up until all hours with his pals, talking business, sipping scotch, smoking cigars. Unorthodox, yes, but his guerrilla band produced results, and it got Johnson noticed. In 1973, he was promoted to head Standard Brands International Division. He moved to New York. Cocksure, buoyant, bubbly, Johnson was utterly unintimidated by the city. 
At age 42, he was only now starting to find his stride in life. Johnson's new boss, Henry Weigel, was a tyrant who ran a tight, Spartan company. Weigel would pinch a penny until it screamed. At first, Johnson managed to avoid Weigel's wrath. He delivered results and was out of the country half the time, visiting the company's far-flung international operations. But Johnson's flamboyant style guaranteed an eventual collision with his indomitable boss. Always drawn to celebrities, Johnson soon befriended the former football star Frank Gifford, then announcing Monday Night Football and pitching ads for Standard Brand's Dry Sack Sherry. Through Gifford, he met an array of big names, football commissioner Pete Rozelle, race car mogul Roger Penske, broadcast buddy Don Meredith, Rune Arledge, who headed ABC Sports. The Giffer, the Glitz, the Contacts, Johnson thrived. Beaten down Standard Brands executives rallied around this buoyant newcomer. So too did he become a favorite of the Standard Brands board. They rewarded him by naming him a director in 1974 and promoting him to president a year later. In 1976, the board named Johnson chief operating officer, making him Weigel's clear heir apparent. Weigel, who had torpedoed successors before, dispatched a team of auditors to Canada. Eventually, Weigel learned of Johnson's huge New York limo tab, which the company was picking up. He began gathering information on Johnson's extramarital affairs. Johnson, meanwhile, prepared for war. A headhunter who gathered employee intelligence for Weigel became a double agent, also reporting to Johnson. It all came to a head on a Friday morning in mid-May when the directors convened. Both men addressed the board, and then Johnson left the room while the board caucused. When he returned, Weigel was no longer in the chairman's spot at the head of the table. Ross Johnson had command of a New York Stock Exchange company. Afterward, he and the merry men toasted their victory with martinis late into the night. It had, they agreed, been a splendid coup. It wouldn't be their last. After Weigel's ouster, staid old standard brands became Phi Delta Johnson. Gone was the prohibition on first-class travel. In no time, Johnson leased a corporate jet and acquired a company-owned Jaguar. Overnight, the corporate culture was transformed into a facsimile of Johnson's flip, breezy manner. Johnson had no use for long meetings when short ones would do, or when he was doing a golf course. For that matter, he had no use for traditional business hours. Johnson firmly believed that true inspiration and insight happen only after hours. Babies, he liked to say, are only born at night. On a typical evening, Johnson and his merry men would knock off around 7.30 and head out en masse for the night shift. They'd stake out a table at Minucci's and drink until it closed, convening afterwards at Johnson's new company-owned apartment, where they'd order out for pizza or Chinese. It was, Johnson recalled, like Boys Town. Many executives saw their salaries doubled. Pay at Standard Brands went from the bottom of the industry barrel to the top of the heap. Johnson didn't stop there. In the months following Weigel's departure, he had the company pay for his membership in 18 different country clubs. Standard Brands, which had no corporate apartments under Weigel, had 18 by the time Johnson was through. Always a big tipper, Johnson took to keeping a bulging wad of what he called whip money, large bills that could be readily whipped out of his suit pocket. Johnson's immediate business challenge at Standard Brands was to keep it from collapsing. He tried to compensate for the company's poor showing by devising jazzy new products, an effort that led to what one analyst called some of the most celebrated failures in the food industry, like the ill-fated Reggie Candy Bar, named for one of Johnson's newest friends, baseball star Reggie Jackson. Through the rough times, the Standard Brands board never wrapped its young chief's knuckles. Johnson, mindful of Weigel's fate, treated the directors like kings, only occasionally would his loud wardrobe or blue language push the board's limits. 
The party at Standard Branch went on like that for four years, constant upheaval, a string of marketing disasters, ho-hum profits, but lots of fun, money, and perks for Johnson and his friends. But then Johnson became restless. It was as if Standard Branch was a toy he'd gotten for Christmas, and having played with it for a while, he was getting bored. Part of his disaffection was due to the fact that Johnson, now moving into his late 40s, was no longer the boy wonder of the mid-70s. The idea of becoming a sedate corporate elder made him shiver. What was needed, it was clear, was a new adventure. The opportunity came in a curious phone call from a fellow chief executive in March 1981, Bob Shaverly, chairman of the food giant Nabisco. In a matter of weeks, the two executives agreed to merge their companies. Nabisco Brands, as the new company would be called, was formed in a $1.9 billion stock swap, at the time one of the larger mergers of consumer product companies. Technically, it was a marriage of equals, but that was considered so much chin music. Everyone knew Nabisco, with dominant brands such as Ritz and Oreo, was the more powerful company. Everyone knew who would be in charge. At Nabisco, no one was fired. No one worked past five. No one raised a voice. No one, not even the new chief executive, Bob Shaverly, had a company car or a corporate country club membership. Then along came Ross Johnson. It was as if the Hells Angels had merged with the Rotary Club. On paper, Shaberly remained the top executive of Nabisco Brands, but Johnson found it easy to get his way. Their offices were adjacent, and Johnson wasted no time ingratiating himself with the boss. He deferred to Shaberly in every regard, obsequiously addressing him in meetings as Mr. Chairman. Johnson's many country club memberships were paid for by the company. He insisted that Shaberly's dues be picked up, too. Johnson and his executives drove flashy company cars. He insisted Shaberly and his aides do so, too. Johnson's base pay was more than double Shaberly's, requiring a vast raise for the chairman. Slowly but surely, Johnson closed his grip around Shaberly's company. One by one, veteran Nabisco executives began to vanish. Johnson immediately installed Standard Brands people beneath him and replaced Nabisco's financial controls with a system devised at Standard Brands. To some who caught Johnson's act during this period, he was less a business dynamo than a corporate Eddie Haskell, sucking up to Shaberly while kicking the beaver in the teeth. Whatever the case, it worked. Within three years, 21 of the company's top 24 officers were Standard Brands men. Even as he reshaped its executive suite, Johnson moved to mold Nabisco's business mix to his own taste. But as successful as his manipulations were, Johnson could see it would take something like wartime conditions to attain a complete overhaul of Nabisco Brands. To his surprise, he soon reached that juncture in a period that came to be known as the Cookie Wars with Frito-Lay and Procter & Gamble. It gave Johnson reason to wipe out still more of the Nabisco old guard, and it worked. As the smoke cleared, Johnson emerged triumphant, both inside and outside Nabisco. As far as Shaberly and the board were concerned, he could do no wrong. That year, 1984, Shaberly rewarded Johnson by seating him the title of chief executive. After only a decade in New York, Johnson had achieved the pinnacle of success, CEO of one of America's great food companies. He was a new breed of chief executive for a new age of American business. He was no old-style team player, but a Broadway Joe or Reggie Jacks, an iconoclastic superstar, a cool television-age man, loyal to little but his own whims. But even as he assumed Nabisco's throne, Johnson seemed to lose interest in running it. He could no longer see much of a future in it. No amount of work was going to revitalize Nabisco's aging bakeries anytime soon. Johnson, in fact, never bothered to formulate any kind of master plan for reshaping Nabisco. Instead, he spent his time enjoying the high life, putting out corporate fires as they flared, and waiting. Then, on a spring day in 1985, 
Less than a year after being tapped Nabisco's chief, Johnson took a call from J. Tylee Wilson, chairman and chief executive officer of R.J. Reynolds Industries, the North Carolina-based tobacco giant. Would Johnson be interested in getting together for lunch? Maybe, Wilson said, they could do some business. If not for the R.J. Reynolds Tobacco Company, the modest skyline of downtown Winston-Salem, North Carolina would not exist at all. On a humid summer morning when there's no breeze to carry it away, the pungent smell of tobacco still hangs over downtown Winston-Salem, wafting from the company's oldest tobacco factory. It serves as one constant reminder why there is a Winston-Salem. The little burg was always enormously proud of its big company, calling itself Camel City. Factory workers in overalls walked into stockbrokers' offices with paper bags full of cash and buy orders for Reynolds Tobacco. Shares were handed from one generation to the next with an admonition, don't you ever sell that Reynolds stock. The community's Moravian values became, if anything, even more imbued in the company, work. Competitors tobacco buyers returned home and goofed off after the eight-month tobacco auction season. Reynolds were assigned to cull the tobacco leaves they had bought. Thrift. Reynolds workers were expected to turn in the stub of a pencil to get a new one. Ingenuity. The company developed a way to recycle scraps and stems of tobacco to greatly increase the usable amount of each leaf and greatly increase profits. Life was good. In 1960, Reynolds Winston, Salem, and Camel were three of the top four best-selling cigarette brands. It was often said that Reynolds' only problem was how to turn out cigarettes fast enough and how to ship all that money back. America's love affair with tobacco went largely unopposed until 1964, when Surgeon General Luther Terry issued his landmark report linking cigarette smoke with cancer. Cigarette sales, which had risen an average of 5% a year, fell sharply. Growth eventually resumed, but Reynolds saw and heeded the warning and began buying businesses outside the tobacco industry, mostly in the food business. But in the 1970s, senior executives led Reynolds on a disastrous diversification campaign that, in a deterioration similar to Nabisco's, would have far-reaching effects on the company's core tobacco business. In 1983, Tylee Wilson was elevated to chief executive, and he set to work reshaping Reynolds. Wilson's background had been in consumer products, and it was there he believed the company's future lay. Tobacco remained a fabulously profitable business, but even die-hard industry partisans saw the twilight ahead. So in 1985, Wilson began preparations for his biggest move yet, an acquisition that would fulfill his grand vision to mold Reynolds into a consumer goods superpower to rival Procter & Gamble. Wilson set up a task force to sift through and rank the candidates. After many months and countless computer studies, according to his task force, Reynolds' ideal marriage partner was Nabisco Brands, headed by a breezy, likable Canadian named Ross Johnson. Wilson and Johnson met over sandwiches at Johnson's Midtown Manhattan office, and Wilson laid out his plan. Reynolds, he explained, needed a major acquisition to ease its reliance on tobacco when he thought Nabisco fit the bill perfectly. Wilson told Johnson he planned to retire in two or three years and hinted strongly that Johnson would get first crack at replacing him as head of their combined companies. Within weeks, a small army of Wall Street lawyers and investment bankers were brought in, and Reynolds agreed to acquire Nabisco for $4.9 billion, at the time the largest merger ever to take place outside the oil industry. For the most part, the first weeks following the merger went smoothly, though there were undercurrents of uneasiness that would resurface. Because Reynolds had acquired Nabisco, news of the merger was greeted favorably in Winston-Salem, where the locals took pride in gaining control of a great northern company. 
The lone dissenting voice was Ed Horrigan, president of Reynolds' main tobacco business. Horrigan groused constantly to Wilson about the Nabisco executive's perks. Ross Johnson is a snake, a low-life slime, he declared to anyone who would listen. We'll rue the day we hooked up with that character. Apart from Horrigan, Johnson was initially well-received at Reynolds. Alone among senior Nabisco executives, Johnson moved to Winston-Salem. In his first weeks there, he made an all-out effort to fit in, driving around in a Jeep Wagoneer, inviting people over to dinner, and joining the board of the North Carolina Zoological Society. Most in Winston-Salem were impressed, but not all. Ginny Dowdle, the wife of Reynolds treasurer John Dowdle, sized up Johnson with a single phrase, a used car salesman. Below the top ranks, deep differences in the two organizations were soon apparent. When Reginald Starr, head of the Reynolds Shareholder Services Department, flew to New Jersey for a first meeting with his Nabisco counterparts, he was met by a pair of white limousines with smoked windows. I don't know. It looked like mafia to me, Starr, a 30-year Reynolds veteran, said. It was so ostentatious. I was ashamed to be seen in one of those things. As far as the actual business was concerned, under Wilson, any strategic move, from advertising to changing a cookie box, required multiple sign-offs and weeks of waiting. Johnson's merry men, of course, thought Wilson was nuts. To a man, they remained at Nabisco in New York, where, isolated from Johnson, many grew restless. After just six months under Wilson's regime, several were poised to leave. Johnson traveled to New York and urged his friends to be patient. Things would change, he assured them. Johnson, meanwhile, was doing his best to ingratiate himself with Tylee Wilson. It wasn't easy. The two men were complete opposites. Wilson cringed at Johnson's expense account. When he got a tab for a $13,000 weekend at a Colorado country club, he asked Johnson whether all that hoopla was really necessary. Johnson could always spin a superb rationale about how piddling the cost was compared to the goodwill his party had engendered with grocery executives. A few million dollars, he quipped, are lost in the sands of time. For all their differences in style, Wilson and Johnson rarely disagreed on business matters, and Wilson came to appreciate Johnson's quick mind. Wilson was in fact so pleased with Johnson that he encouraged him to get to know the board members. Much as it had with Henry Weigel a decade before, Johnson's easy charm contrasted sharply with the prickliness of his boss. The beginning of the end for Tylee Wilson came in mid-1986. On a morning drive into his downtown Winston-Salem office, Paul Sticht, chairman of the board's executive committee, noticed a new building going up near the Whitaker Park cigarette plant. What's that, he asked his driver, Eddie. That's where they're going to work on that smokeless cigarette, Eddie said. What? Stick asked in amazement. Stick immediately confronted Wilson, who admitted the company had been secretly trying to develop a breakthrough product, a new high-tech smokeless cigarette. Stick was aghast. That such a product could be developed without consulting the board was unthinkable. How long have you been doing this, he asked. Since 1981, said Wilson. Five years. Project Spa, as it was codenamed, was indeed a revolutionary product. Later named Premier, the smokeless cigarette was Wilson's secret weapon to turn the tide on the anti-smoking movement, smite Marlboro, and reverse the tobacco industry's decline. Whatever its chances of success, the board was incensed that Wilson would attempt such a mammoth undertaking without its approval. He was summoned to explain himself at a July 1986 board meeting in New York. 
One by one, many of the directors laced into him. When the session finally ended, Project Spa had tentative approval to proceed. It had gone so far it hardly seemed worth canceling. And Tylee Wilson had used up what little political capital he retained with his board of directors. After a year of working elbow to elbow with Wilson, Johnson now struck like lightning. Out of the blue, he telephoned several directors and told them he planned to leave RJR Nabisco. It was time to move on, he said. Having planted the seed, Johnson laid back to watch. Eventually, Wilson saw the writing on the wall. At the following month's meeting, he resigned. To go quietly, Wilson received a princely pact, a lump sum payment of $3.25 million, continuation of his annual salary and bonus of $1.3 million until his retirement at the end of 1987, an annual retirement pay totaling about $600,000 a year thereafter. After the slightest of efforts, Ross Johnson was named chief executive of RJR Nabisco, America's 19th largest industrial company. Well, Tylee Wilson muttered afterward, they got me. Ross Johnson's rise to the helm of RJR Nabisco had proceeded with blinding speed. CEO of Nabisco in 1984, the Reynolds-Nabisco merger in 1985, CEO of RJR Nabisco in 1986. If he'd stopped there, history might have looked very differently on Ross Johnson's career. But Johnson, a man who devoted his life to shaking things up, had no intention of changing his ways. Reynolds Tobacco churned out $1 billion a year in cash, enough to fund the wildest schemes and cover the worst mistakes. A billion dollars, Johnson said reverentially. You can't spend that much money in a year. Because Johnson still knew next to nothing about tobacco, he had to have a man who did. And whatever their past disagreements, he was determined it would be Ed Horrigan. Horrigan had raged about the luxurious New York apartments Johnson's Nabisco chums had. Johnson now made sure Horrigan got the most luxurious of them all, in the museum tower above the Museum of Modern Art. Johnson gave Horrigan his own personal Gulfstream G3 jet, the top of the line in corporate aircraft, to use as he wished. Next. Johnson began to purge the ranks of the Reynolds old guard. All down the line, Reynolds people were thrown into the streets to make room for Johnson's Nabisco cronies. As Johnson consolidated his control, he shed his small town poses and reverted to the Johnson of old. Most every weekend he jetted off to some far-flung golf club, tended to his tan in Florida, or hit Manhattan with Frank Gifford and other friends. Under Johnson, RJR Nabisco was finally torn loose from the old-fashioned Reynolds value system. Over the years, the unassuming largesse of Reynolds senior executives had created institutions such as the Bowman Gray School of Medicine. Johnson's idea of good works was the Pro-Am golf tournament he organized to benefit the Wake Forest golf team. The capper was his wife. The town matrons would draw close at the luncheon table. Have you heard the latest? They called her Cupcake. Lori Johnson was a gorgeous blonde in her early 30s. The proper Reynolds wife wore conservative clothes and lots of makeup. Lori bounced around in jogging suits, looking like the California girl she was. The proper Reynolds wife played bridge. Lori was an ace golfer who could drive a ball as far as a man. It was hopeless. The gossips had a field day after Johnson took a top Wake Forest golfer under his wing and into his home. When the young golfer moved into the Johnson's basement, rumors spread that he and Cupcake had been caught in a jacuzzi in flagrante. Tensions flared into the open that November when Reynolds Tobacco announced layoffs. The Winston-Salem Journal expressed its editorial disapproval, saying it hoped the layoffs weren't a sign of things to come under the management of Johnson and the Nabisco cookie monsters. For Johnson, it was one of the last straws. I don't have to take this shit, he said. 
although he had done his best to disguise the fact he hated small-town life. To Johnson, there seemed only one conclusion, move. Relocating RJR Nabisco's headquarters would kill Winston-Salem, drive a dagger right through its proud provincial heart. Johnson knew it and began laying the groundwork carefully. Atlanta intrigued Johnson. It was nouveau riche and rootless and deliciously overbuilt. Top-of-the-line office space was going begging. It was near enough to Winston-Salem to be politically plausible. So Atlanta it was. Overnight, Johnson became a local pariah. A country music station had a local hit with a ballad excoriating him. When Johnson described Winston-Salem as bucolic in an interview with the Atlanta Constitution, bumper stickers began appearing all over town. Honk if you're bucolic. Hundreds of workers who wouldn't make the move to Atlanta would be fired. Reynolds veterans who never before worried about losing the shelter of their fatherly employer now lived in daily fear of finding pink slips on their desks. Photocopying machines worked overtime producing underground cartoons. In one, Johnson was depicted as a missing child. The caption, happiness is when you wake up and see Ross's picture on the milk carton. Johnson, a man with almost no roots, couldn't fathom the emotions he had unleashed. Jesus Christ, he said. Exxon takes 7,000 jobs out of New York. Nobody bats an eyelash. I move a few hundred jobs out of here, and I'm Attila the Hun. The backlash, though, made no difference. Atlanta awaited. Its throngs of boosterish businessmen thrilled to welcome a major Fortune 500 company to their ranks. But if the city thought it was getting a warm corporate benefactor eager to put down roots, it soon discovered the truth about restless Ross Johnson. Johnson took over 11 floors in an unremarkable glass tower at a suburban shopping center named the Galleria. In his maiden speech, he suggested that his skeletal headquarters staff should not be reckoned as a dispenser of corporate largesse. It was hardly the attitude city fathers had hoped for. Don't worry, Winston-Salem, said the Atlanta Constitution headline the following day. RJR move here was no great loss. Just weeks after moving to Atlanta, Johnson again shocked RJR Nabisco partisans when he mentioned almost in passing that he was thinking of transforming Reynolds Tobacco from a corporation into a limited partnership. No one could tell whether it was a certainty or just another half-baked idea sprung from Johnson's unpredictable mind. The announcement, in fact, signaled a change in Johnson's corporate focus. As takeovers swept corporate America during the 1980s, Wall Street investment bankers had long salivated at Reynolds' massive cash flow. It begged to be put to use in acquisitions, but they'd never gotten to first base with Tylee Wilson. Johnson, though, was another matter. Here was a man the Wall Streeters could talk deals with, big deals, exotic deals. The move to Atlanta, in fact, brought investment bankers streaming south like June bugs to a light on a hot Georgia night. The limited partnership idea had come from one of Johnson's most determined pursuers, a wild-eyed Wall Street dealmaker named Jeffrey Beck. Beck worked for Drexel Burnham Lambert, the sharp-elbowed investment house whose Beverly Hills-based junk bond chief Michael Milken almost single-handedly transformed the takeover business in the mid-1980s. On Wall Street, they called Beck the Mad Dog. A true character, Beck styled himself the ultimate wheeler-dealer. While other bankers specialized in analysis or combat tactics, Beck seemed to make a career out of fast-talking and histrionics. Johnson had long been worried that RJR Nabisco's stock price was unfairly penalized because investors never factored in Nabisco, choosing only to focus on tobacco's bleak future. Beck's partnership idea was intended to combat that perception. 
As ideas like Beck's began to pile up, Johnson handed them off to an informal group of advisors he took to calling his financial R&D department, headed by his old friend Andy Sage and a Washington-based consultant named Frank Benevento. Johnson thought the pair was top-notch. When their work service months later, though, his Wall Street friends would wonder why. Two months after riling Winston-Salem and Wall Street by mentioning the limited partnership idea, Johnson announced he was no longer considering it. Beck was undaunted. He promptly came back to Johnson with another idea to split up the company, spinning off rentals to shareholders and allowing management to acquire Nabisco in a conventional leverage buyout. For all his free-spending ways, the fact was Johnson remained a prude about corporate debt, the core of any leverage buyout, also known as an LBO. Banks didn't understand the need for golf tournaments and corporate jets. They cramped his style. No, he'd take a pass on an LBO. His power consolidated at RJR Nabisco. Johnson relaxed and began to enjoy himself. The order of the day was having fun. He stayed clear of Winston-Salem as much as possible. He remained a marked man in North Carolina. One evening, the Horrigans had the Johnsons over for dinner. Talk turned to the burgeoning LBO phenomenon. Oh, hell, we'll never do a buyout, Johnson said. We have the best jobs in America. It was no lie. RJR executives live like kings. The top 31 executives were paid a total of $14.2 million, or an average of $458,000 apiece. It was literally the sweet life. A candy cart came around twice a day, dropping off bowls of bonbons at each floor's reception areas. Not baby roots, mind you, but fine French confections. The minimum perks for even lowly middle managers was one club membership in one company car worth up to $28,000. But it was at nearby Charlie Brown Airport, where corporate Atlanta housed its jets, that the air of new money and restlessness found its ultimate expression. There, Johnson ordered a new hangar built to house RJR Nabisco's growing fleet of corporate aircraft. When it was finished, RJR Nabisco had the Taj Mahal of corporate hangars, dwarfing that of Coca-Cola's next door. The flight planning room was packed with state-of-the-art computers, all necessary to keep track of RJR Nabisco's 36 corporate pilots in 10 planes, widely known as the RJR Air Force. As RJR Nabisco's titular chairman, Paul Stick was appalled by Johnson's free-spinning ways. A lover of the fine things himself, even Stick now thought things had gone too far. Always alert to shifting political winds, Johnson sensed that Stick's power was finally waning. Just as he had earlier wooed him, Johnson now cut Stick off at the knees. After he was removed as chairman, the aviation department was told that if Stick asked for a jet, it would have to be personally authorized by Johnson. When Stick found out, he stopped asking. In contrast to their treatment under Wilson, the directors found that all their needs were attended to in detail under Johnson. Johnson encouraged them to use the RJR Air Force anytime, anywhere, at no charge. I sometimes feel like the director of transportation, he once sighed after arranging yet another director's flight. But I know if I'm there for them, they'll be there for me. Johnson thought he had the board in the palm of his hand, but Horrigan wasn't so sure. This isn't your board, Ross, he told him. They're just waiting for you to make a mistake. Most people were waiting for Johnson to make his next move. For a year after moving to Atlanta, Johnson made due trimming RJR Nabisco, selling Hoopline in a host of small companies. As money from these divestitures poured into RJR Nabisco's coffers, Johnson used it mainly to pay down bank debt. Investment bankers pestered him constantly to put the funds to better use, buy something they urged, put your imprint on the company. But Johnson wasn't interested in building anything. One recurrent rumor had him buying part of Beatrice, the Chicago food giant taken private in 1986 by the leading leverage buyout boutique, 
Kohlberg, Kravis, Robertson Company. Johnson knew the chief of Beatrice, Don Kelly. You should meet Henry Kravis, Kelly told Johnson. He's curious to meet you. I could set up a dinner with him. Johnson was intrigued. Kravis, whose firm was practically synonymous with LBOs, was a legend on Wall Street. Kohlberg Kravis controlled more than two dozen companies it had acquired using borrowed money since its founding in 1976. So, ten days later, Johnson arrived at Kravis's Park Avenue apartment, where he found Don Kelly waiting. Johnson stared goggle-eyed at Kravis's sumptuous quarters. He thought he spied a Renoir or a Monet on the wall. Hell, Johnson told himself, the guy could live well off the liquidation value of his living room. Kravis was a small, intense man with silvery hair, just 43. He spent much of the dinner extolling LBOs, how pouring on debt made a company tighten its operations, how executives could reap millions from little extra effort. If you're interested, maybe we could get together, Kravis said. If you'd like, we could send out people to look at your numbers. Johnson was skeptical, although he kept his tongue. He wasn't interested in working for anyone other than himself. Dinner soon ran its course, and Johnson rose to leave after scarcely 90 minutes. He left feeling Kravis was a bright, steady young man. He also felt sure they could never do business together. The following Monday morning, Johnson sat down with Benevento and Sage and took another look at the possibility of an LBO. The basics of an LBO were relatively simple and familiar to all three men. A firm such as Colbert Kravis, working with a company's management, buys the company using money raised from banks in the public sale of securities. The debt is paid down with cash from the company's operations and often by selling pieces of the business. Johnson scanned Benevento's work paying particular attention to the coverage ratios, the cushion between cash flow and debt payments. They were simply too thin. Who needs the aggravation, Johnson said. Forget the goddamn LBOs. On October 19, 1987, the stock market crashed. RJR Nabisco, which had been trading in the mid-60s the week before, plunged into the low 40s by midday. In the crash's wake, the stock languished there for weeks. It was the beginning of Johnson's road to ruin for the low stock price would haunt him for months to come. No matter what he did, buyers treated his stock like a tobacco stock, even though 60% of its sales came from Nabisco and Del Monte. Johnson wasn't the only one who noticed RJR Nabisco's low stock price. In January, the syndicated columnist Dan Dorfman mentioned the company as a takeover candidate. Johnson poo-pooed the notion, although some aides grew worried. In the spring, Johnson redoubled his efforts to boost his sagging stock price. At the March board meeting, he gave directors two options. Buy Hunt Wesson, which would further emphasize the company's tilt toward food, or buy back more stock. Having fewer shares outstanding should buoy the price of the stock. The directors, none of whom shared Johnson's growing concern about the stock price, chose the latter. In March and April, RJR Nabisco purchased 41 million shares. The company had traded around $52 a share in anticipation of the buyback, but immediately fell back into the mid-40s. Its price was lower than ever. By the spring of 1988, Wall Street still hadn't recovered from October's crash. With all its other businesses wallowing, Wall Street turned to its one guaranteed source of income, takeovers. Mergers and acquisitions, M&A, were the ultimate creature of Wall Street because win, lose, or draw, they produced fees. Just as they had fueled the street's mushrooming growth throughout the 1980s, takeover fees would again prop up the securities industry's profits that spring. Wall Street, in short, became addicted to deals. And the offices of RJR soon became the deal junkies' newest shooting gallery. 
At the crest of the takeover wave that spring was the merger department at Shearson Lehman Hutton, the fast-growing brokerage unit of financial giant American Express. Shearson was poised to challenge Merrill Lynch as the preeminent Wall Street brokerage. Its merger department was headed by a pair of veteran dealmakers, Steve Waters and Tom Hill, who were eager to make names for themselves. Steve Waters' easygoing manner, forthright attitude, and sincerity, a rarity among his ilk, made him a favorite of Johnson, whom he had known since Standard Brands. J. Tomlinson Hill III was the warrior of the pair, a zealot for the Wall Street trenches. To enemies, and he had a few, Tom Hill came across as an oiled-back Gordon Gecko haircut atop five feet ten inches of icy Protestant reserve. To colleagues, Waters and Hill made an unlikely pair. That spring, as Hill's prestige rose, Waters found himself embroiled in a nasty internal battle to gain better bonuses for his troops. When Waters offered his resignation, it was accepted. Waters wasn't surprised to learn that Hill had been quietly assuring senior Shearson executives he could handle the department on his own. When Waters left Shearson, many on Wall Street suspected Tom Hill's fingerprints were on the dagger protruding from Waters' back. At the top of Hill's damage control list was RJR Nabisco. Ross Johnson was one of the department's five most lucrative relationships, and Hill had a hunch he was ripe to do a deal. After leaving Shearson, meanwhile, Waters ultimately accepted an offer from his old friend Eric Gleacher at Morgan Stanley. On his second day on the job, Waters sat down in Gleacher's corner office to discuss what clients they could hope to snatch from Shearson. Johnson topped the list. By late spring, the word was all over Wall Street that Ross Johnson was ripe to do a deal. Jeff Beck knew it. He continued to push Johnson to do an LBO. Ira Harris of Lazard Frere knew it. So did Hill and Walters. Each had his own ideas on how best to twist Johnson's arm. As the bankers circled, Johnson remained transfixed by his stock price. It was like a scab at which he constantly picked. Johnson couldn't leave well enough alone. The old urges to action were returning, and the stock price was simply their latest manifestation. In the name of boosting his stock, Johnson had sorted through dozens of schemes. Plus, he had high hopes for the smokeless cigarette, Premier, which was due in test markets by fall. Rumors swept the stock market the week before that the company was developing a revolutionary new cigarette, and the stock had shot up three points. However, Premier was flunking its taste tests. In its U.S. research laboratories, Reynolds scientists found that fewer than 5% of smokers liked its taste. In Japan, another team of researchers quickly learned to translate at least one sentence of Japanese. This tastes like shit. If that weren't bad enough, the cigarette was hard to draw on. Privately, line executives knew they needed years to iron out the glitches. Yet Horrigan had promised the world it would be out in 1988. As Premier moved toward its fall introduction, further new hopes for boosting the stock arose in June. In a New Jersey federal court, the widower of a lifelong smoker named Rose Chipalone was suing a number of tobacco companies for contributing to his wife's death. Reynolds wasn't a defendant, but Johnson reasoned that a tobacco victory would give his stock a real pop. The jury cleared the industry of conspiracy, but awarded only $400,000 in damages. Johnson waited for RJR Nabisco's stock to spike up. It didn't. Johnson's office became a wailing wall where everybody came to cry about the injustice of it all. 
Investment bankers weren't the only new faces in RJR Nabisco's executive suite that summer. Johnson's closest friend became an executive vice president named John Martin. At 46, Martin was part of the Frank Gifford connection. During the 70s, he had been one of the bright young men at ABC Sports. He joined RJR in January 1988 from Oldmeyer Communications, and he and Johnson became inseparable. On organizational charts, Martin didn't appear to wield much power, but he had Johnson's ear, and he began acting as his gatekeeper. Meanwhile, the dismissal of some of Johnson's trusted advisors underscored some unsettling changes. For the first time, he was attracting media attention. Fortune profiled him in a puffy cover story that summer as America's toughest marketing man. Johnson's friends thought he was beginning to believe his own reviews. America's toughest marketing man, they feared, was really becoming America's most out-of-touch marketing man. At the same time, the man who had made a science of stroking directors was growing cavalier about his board meetings. They were fewer and farther between, and were increasingly sloppy affairs. As he had at Standard Brands in Nabisco, Johnson seemed to be losing interest in operating the company. More and more, he concentrated on only two things, having fun and goosing the stock. In July, Ed Robinson and Harold Henderson, worried that the company's continuing low stock price made it vulnerable to a takeover, got permission from Johnson to approach Shearson Lehman about shoring up its takeover defenses. They wanted an array of plans that could be erected at the first sign of a hostile raider. Johnson considered a takeover unlikely, but Henderson insisted they be prepared for the worst. Word that a company was worried about a takeover invited speculation, which inevitably drew speculators. Only five Shearson executives, including Cohen and Tom Hill, were cleared to work on the plan. Hill came up with a code name whose irony wouldn't be clear until months later. Project Stretch. As they searched for solutions for Johnson's concerns about the stock, everyone who analyzed the problem mentioned the possibility of a leveraged buyout. It was a standard solution to any company whose stock drooped. Every investment banker urged Johnson to consider it. Soon, LBO ideas were arriving, uninvited, over the transom. To each, Johnson replied he wasn't interested. For the time being, Johnson seemed curious about every possible scheme but an LBO. His grandest occurred to him in July. For months, he had been trying to interest Philip Morris in combining the two companies' international tobacco businesses into a joint venture. Philip Morris had expressed interest in acquiring RJR's international tobacco business, but Johnson suggested a joint venture of their food companies instead. Philip Morris wasn't interested. Johnson tried to shrug it off. It wasn't as if he had nothing else up his sleeve to boost the stock. Johnson remained ambivalent about an LBO, but a few days later he called Andy Sage and told him to call Shearson and light a fire under Project Stretch. Johnson wanted the homework done by mid-September so they could quickly begin looking at the possibility of an LBO. Later that week, Johnson called Charlie Hugel, mentioning the Shearson study almost offhandedly. Incidentally, we're having them take a look at whether there's any merit in an LBO. What do you think? Frankly, Hugel said, not much. Hugel himself had confronted far tougher problems than a low stock price, and to him, proposing an LBO was like shooting someone to rid them of a hangnail. Ross, he said, deciding to hit Johnson where he lived, you might have to cut back on the jets, the headquarters, the whole way you live. Do you really want to do that? By the time he hung up, Hugel thought he had talked Johnson out of pursuing an LBO. 
When Johnson returned to Atlanta after Labor Day, it was only for a day. The next morning, he headed to London, where he and John Martin had a whirlwind schedule set up. As Johnson dozed over the North Atlantic a few minutes before 2 o'clock Wednesday morning, September 7th, a policeman in suburban Westchester County, New York, spotted a 1987 Nissan, crushed and overturned, about 300 feet from the road. Nearby, authorities found the bleeding body of Johnson's 26-year-old son, Bruce. Unconscious, he was rushed to a nearby hospital. It wasn't clear whether Bruce was dead or alive. Johnson and Martin hopped on the first Concord back. On the flight, Johnson lit up a premiere in the no-smoking section. It'll be interesting to see if anyone notices, he told Martin. By the time Johnson arrived at the hospital, his son was in a coma. Doctors weren't sure when, if ever, he would regain consciousness. On Thursday, Jim Robinson visited. Ross, all you can do is make sure you're getting the best medical attention you can get. You just have to keep your focus and perspective and go on about your life. On Friday, Johnson stared at his open briefcase. He knew he had to get himself together, get back on track. He decided to take Robinson's advice and plunge back into work. Walking into his office, Johnson brought out a sharp pencil, a calculator, and an accounting spreadsheet. All around him, on the floor and the furniture, he piled reports from his planning department, blue book statements, studies from investment bankers, and computer printouts. He wanted to see for himself if an LBO made sense, for he no longer trusted investment bankers or computers to give him the answer. By Monday evening, he had a feeling. Not only could he raise enough to try a buyout, but he was ready to give it a serious look. Walking to his apartment that evening, Johnson thanked God for giving him something to take his mind off his son. The next morning, he met a Shearson contingent led by Peter Cohn and Tom Hill. Johnson was well aware the project they were contemplating could lead to an LBO three times larger than any seen before. Meanwhile, Jeff Beck was perplexed. He couldn't reach Johnson. Something was going on. Beck could feel it. On September 12th, he took his suspicions to a man he had courted just as fervently as Johnson, Henry Kravis. Beck had helped Kravis with a number of deals, including his largest, Beatrice. I think it's time to do something about RJR, Beck said. We ought to just arrange a meeting and make an offer. You're probably right, Kravis said. Get me the numbers and set something up. Beck agreed. There's a problem, though. You won't give Ross what he wants. What's that? Beck knew that Johnson simply wasn't interested in working for someone else. For one thing, he told Kravis, they'll want control of the board. That's true. We won't give him that, Kravis said. That's a problem. Later, Beck got back to one of RJR's top executives, Jim Welch, about setting up a conference between Johnson and Kravis. Welch was noncommittal but suggested they might get together in the last week of October or the first week of November. The Mad Dog didn't know it, but by then his request would long be moot. Outside the Metropolitan Museum that blustery September evening, there was all the anticipation of a Hollywood opening, through a phalanx of photographers and reporters, the cream of New York society hustled inside, the ladies clutching their hair against the wind, the men dapper in tuxedos. 
Few, even in this social stratum, had the connections to throw a private party at the museum. But greeting their guests inside the wrought iron gates of the medieval court that evening was a couple who'd muscled their way in with a $10 million donation. Henry Kravis and his stunning fashion designer wife, Carolyn Rome. The affair was, in fact, an unofficial coronation of sorts for its hosts, Kravis and Rome, the prince and princess of the newly moneyed set dubbed Nouvelle Society. Married just three years, they had rocketed to the fore of Manhattan society, capturing the imagination of social climbers everywhere. Yet for all the attention, Kravis himself remained something of an enigma. Friends inevitably described him as kind, gentle, and upbeat. Qualities, of course, that never quite came across in his business dealings. There was a steely glint in his eyes that made one want to believe the stories of unbridled greed and ambition. And there was an air that hinted at something tightly coiled beneath, a sense, however slight, of menace. Practically unknown just five years before, Kravis and his secretive firm, Kohlberg, Kravis, Roberts & Company, had ridden Wall Street's leveraged buyout boom to prominence in the mid-80s. If it were ranked as an industrial company, the businesses Kohlberg, Kravis controlled, from Duracell batteries to Safeway supermarkets, would place it among the top 10 U.S. corporations. Now, with $45 billion in buying power, Kravis was the unquestioned king of Wall Street acquisitors, his war chest greater than the gross national products of Pakistan or Greece, his clout rivaling that of any in financial history. For six years, from 1976 to 1982, Kravis and his partners Jerry Kohlberg and George Roberts had fine-tuned the craft of the LBO. They plugged along, quietly dominating their obscure little niche of finance. Then, as so often happens on Wall Street, someone noticed. Suddenly, everyone wanted to try this LBO thing, even though few knew how it worked. And try it, they did. In the five years before Ross Johnson decided to pursue his buyout, LBO activity totaled $181.9 billion, compared to just $11 billion in the six years before that. A number of factors combined to fan the frenzy. The Internal Revenue Code, by making interest but not dividends deductible from taxable income, in effect subsidized the trend. That got LBOs off the ground. What made them soar was junk bonds. Of the money raised for any LBO, about 60%, the secured debt, comes in the form of loans from commercial banks. Only about 10% actually comes from the buyer itself. For years, the remaining 30% came from a handful of major insurance companies whose commitments sometimes took months to obtain. Then, in the early 80s, Drexel Burnham began using high-risk junk bonds to replace the insurance company funds. The firm's junk bond czar, Michael Milken, had proven his ability to raise enormous amounts of these securities on a moment's notice for hostile takeovers. Thanks to junk bonds, the LBO buyers, once thought too slow to compete in a takeover battle, were able to mount split-second tender offers of their own for the first time. Suddenly, LBOs became a viable alternative in every takeover situation. Because they held out the promise of operating autonomy and vast riches, Colbert, Kravis, and other firms were swamped with requests from chief executives to become white knight rescuers of their raider-besieged companies. It was a symbiotic relationship repeated in deal after deal. Raider seeks target. Target seeks LBO. And raider, target, and LBO firm all profit from the outcome. The only ones hurt were the company's bondholders, whose holdings were devalued in the face of the new debt, and, of course, employees who often lost their jobs. But in the sheer joy of making money, Wall Street didn't pay too much attention to either group. No sooner did LBOs blossom than critics took aim. The vast debt assumed by post-LBO companies worried many, including many in government. In mid-1984, the chairman of the Securities and Exchange Commission predicted that the more leveraged takeovers and buyouts now, the more bankruptcies tomorrow. 
a top executive of Goodyear Tire and Rubber went a step further, labeling the LBO an idea that was created in hell by the devil himself. By late 1987, of the $20 billion in equity poised for LBO investments worldwide, Colbert Kravis controlled $1 of every four. Fully leveraged, it gave them enough buying power, enough money, Fortune magazine pointed out, to buy all 10 Fortune 500 companies headquartered in Minneapolis, including Honeywell, General Mills, and Pillsbury. Wall Street had never seen anything like it before. Wall Street, in fact, didn't know the half of it. For the first time, Kravis and Roberts had sought and received permission from their pension fund investors to secretly accumulate stock in their targets. These so-called toehold investments, a mainstay of corporate raiders like Boone Pickens, would give Kravis and Roberts negotiating advantage with chief executives and allow the firm to profit from the inevitable run-up in a target company's stock. A reaction to its new competitive environment, this tactic, more than any other, institutionalized Kravis's new, more aggressive bent. But this approach required Kravis to walk a fine line. Most pension funds, the major source of his money, were either barred from or leery of hostile takeovers. Just a whiff of hostile action could scare off investors and irreparably damage his franchise in strictly friendly leverage buyouts. If Colbert Kravis were branded a raider, what chief executive in his right mind would want to work with it? As stock prices plummeted in the crash of October 1987, Kravis and Roberts made their move, swooping in and secretly buying vast chunks of several major U.S. corporations. In 1988, they brought the LBO idea to one of these companies, its identity still secret, and were rejected. Then, at the end of March 1988, Kravis unveiled a 4.9% stake in Texaco. For two months, Kravis and Roberts attempted to talk the oil company's officials into a buyout or some type of major restructuring. They couldn't. The problem, it soon became clear, was that Colbert Kravis was all bite and no bark. With one eye trained on their pension fund investors, Kravis and Roberts couldn't bring themselves to make an outright hostile bid, and everyone knew it. It wasn't just new deals that were turning sour, either. After shedding many of its businesses, Kravis was finding it impossible to sell the remainder of Beatrice. The problem was a nasty knot of liabilities that no buyer wanted to take on. All in all, it had been a rotten year. Rejected by his targets, competitors nipping at his heels, Kravis couldn't be blamed for falling into a foul mood. When Jeff Beck mentioned approaching RJR Nabisco, Kravis hadn't thought much of it. Kravis sent out dozens of similar feelers every month. On October 5th, Kravis breakfasted with one of his favorite investment bankers, Steve Waters of Morgan Stanley. What's going on with RJR, Kravis asked. He hadn't talked with Johnson since their meeting a year before. I've rethought some of my objections about tobacco liability, he told Waters. Maybe we should see if Ross might want to talk. Waters telephoned Johnson later that day. Jim Welch returned his call. Henry would really like to sit down with you guys, Waters said. Well, that's interesting, Welch replied. But Ross is busy right now. Let us think about it. We'll crank through the numbers and get back to you. Waters' call should have been a warning. But Ross Johnson ignored it.
As his sleek Gulfstream jet descended through the clouds over Atlanta that Friday evening, Peter Cohen, CEO of Shearson, pondered the long weekend ahead. The following morning, October 8th, Cohen was to meet with Ross Johnson for the first time in nearly a month. Tom Hill's team had been assembling data for weeks, although Johnson still hadn't signaled whether he would go through with an LBO. Cohen hoped they would find out in the morning. Cohen looked like a tough guy, and for years that's pretty much what he was. As a longtime aide to one of Shearson's founders, Sandy Weil, he had earned a reputation as a hatchet man. Turning 40 and taking the reins of Shearson had mellowed him, or so it seemed. Friends talked of how Cohen had grown in recent years, meaning he no longer publicly labeled critics assholes. After the 1987 stock market crash, Shearson's earnings had begun to sag. Cohen badly needed a fresh stream of profits. When Ross Johnson switched course and began contemplating LBO scenarios, it looked like the answer to Cohen's prayers. An $18 billion buyout could wash away a lot of problems. The mere fact that they had carried it off, the largest LBO in history, would instantly catapult Shearson into the top ranks of merchant banking firms. The upfront fees alone, maybe $200 million in all, would be a gigantic boost to Shearson's flagging earnings, and it wouldn't stop there. For years afterward, the money would continue to stream in. It was enough to make Cohen's head swim. Cohen had worked on only one LBO in his entire career, but Johnson's friendship with Jim Robinson, combined with the deal's potential impact on Shearson, compelled him to take an active interest in current negotiations. Saturday morning, the Shearson team of Peter Cohen, Tom Hill, and others settled into Johnson's office overlooking a sea of Georgia pines. Johnson, accompanied by Horrigan, Sage, and Henderson, had brought along the newest member of the team, Stephen Goldstone of the Wall Street firm of Davis, Polk, and Wardell. At 42, Goldstone was a curious choice to advise the RJR Nabisco executives. As a tactician, he was virtually unknown. For a decade, he had worked on the bread-and-butter underwriting and mid-sized acquisitions on which the securities industry was built. The talk in Johnson's office that day was cordial and covered a variety of issues. Tom Hill was surprised to find out how thoroughly Johnson's people understood LBOs. The pupil, in fact, was about to tell the teacher how class would be run. Central to the success of most LBOs is a ruse known as the gun-to-the-head strategy. In it, a group of senior corporate executives secretly works with a Wall Street firm such as Shearson to assemble financing. Once the financing is lined up and an offering price agreed on, the chief executive presents the bid as a take-it-or-leave-it proposition to the board. The idea is to keep the entire process secret until a deal has been cut, ending the bidding before it can begin. Johnson wouldn't hear of it. He had seen this board exact its wrath on Tylee Wilson for lesser transgressions. Nor was he willing to let Shearson arrange financing or do anything else that, if leaked, would anger directors. Diverting from accepted LBO strategy made Cohen and Hill uneasy, but they had no choice. Without Johnson, they had no deal. If the board chose to publicly announce their overture, it would blow their tactical advantage. Everyone in the room knew the only one strong enough to put up real competition was Henry Kravis. But Shearson and Johnson were lulled by the same fundamental fallacy. They felt certain that no one, not even Kravis, would attempt to buy out this size without the help of a management team to identify the best ways to cut costs. 
Just as Shearson took it on faith that Johnson could handle his board, Johnson took it on faith that Shearson could raise enough money to buy the company. In fact, the firm had never attempted anything like it. Price was never a matter of serious debate. Both Hill and Johnson thought a bid around $75 a share made sense. It was higher than the stock had ever traded, around $71, although not by much. It could go higher, Hill warned. The board would try and negotiate a better price, perhaps as high as the low $80 range. Johnson got visibly queasy when talk turned to paying more than $75. The higher the price, the more debt had to be piled on. The more debt, the more the corporate belt had to be tightened. Johnson was a man with absolutely no stomach for cost-cutting, certainly not if it meant cutting back the RJR Air Force or other perks. The last and most important point of discussion that day was a management agreement. As the central document defining Johnson's relationship to Shearson, it would lay out how RJR Nabisco would be run, who would control it, and how the profits would be split. What Johnson had in mind amounted to nothing less than a total reversal of the traditional roles of the executive and the LBO firm. To Shearson's amazement, he had demanded control of the board and a veto over major strategic decisions, both during and after the deal. He suspected, correctly, that Shearson would want to cut Premier, the Atlanta headquarters, and the RJR Air Force. A veto was his insurance RJR Nabisco would be run his way, not Shearson's. Again, Cohen and Hill felt they had no choice. But they did balk at Johnson's most outrageous demand, which would give Johnson and his people 20% or more of the stock in a post-LBO RJR Nabisco. The matter was discussed again Saturday, but when the group adjourned around 3 o'clock, little headway had been made. Sage and Hill agreed to discuss it the following week. For a man whose life had been one long party, there was a curious lack of merriment about Johnson in the days leading up to October 19th. It struck more than a few amateur psychologists that Johnson might be doing the whole thing to fill the void caused by his son's accident. Bruce Johnson remained in a coma. On Thursday, October 13th, Johnson tracked down Charlie Hugel at a hotel in Seoul, South Korea, where Hugel was peddling nuclear power plants. We're going to go for it, Johnson said. It's important that you get back and be there for this meeting. Hugel was stunned. Johnson asked Hugel if he would head the independent committee that would evaluate his offer. Hugel accepted. Returning to his Connecticut home Sunday night, Hugel called Johnson, who had returned to Atlanta. They talked about whom to put on the special committee. In effect, Hugel was letting Johnson name his own judges. Another thing, Charlie, Johnson said. You'd better make sure the board has a lawyer. We want it to be like Santa Flush ran through there. Hugel's selection of counsel would be crucial for it would be up to the committee's lawyer to make certain that the directors acted within the bounds of their complex legal and fiduciary duties. He chose Peter Atkins of Skadden Arps, the nation's third largest law firm and by far the most active in the budding field of takeover law. Negotiations over the management agreement had reached an impasse. For two days, Cohen and Hill had listened to Andy Sage lay down the law. If Shearson wanted Johnson to go forward, Shearson would have only two of seven board seats. Johnson would take three, with the remainder going to a pair of independent directors. Johnson's executives would put up no money for their stake in the business. 
Shearson would loan them the funds to buy their stock, which would be repaid through the use of incentive bonuses. Shearson would even pay Johnson's taxes. And, Sage repeated, management would settle for nothing less than 20% of the profits. The negotiations weren't concluded until Monday night, just 48 hours before the board meeting. In a late-night phone call between Johnson and Cohen, Cohen capitulated to every demand. The management agreement gave Johnson's seven-man group 8.5% of the equity, complete with a tax-compensated loan from Shearson. The package's total could go as high as $2.5 billion in the coming years. Johnson's personal 1% could be worth as much as $100 million in five years. Johnson also received a veto and control over the board. It was unlike any major LBO agreement ever signed. Wednesday morning, Hugel and Atkins flew to Atlanta. Hugel wanted to know how Johnson planned to approach the board that evening, and the two men walked through Johnson's approach. Goldstone groaned when he heard Hugel had brought along Atkins. Until that moment, he had held out some hope the board wouldn't disclose Johnson's presentation that night, giving the management group a chance to finish its negotiations in secrecy. Now he knew an announcement was all but certain. After Hugel left, Johnson welcomed John Grenis, the young Nabisco president, just down from New Jersey. Although few knew it, Grenis was to have been Johnson's successor. At a mere 45 years old, he would become chief executive on Johnson's retirement in 1990. When he walked into Johnson's office at 4 o'clock, Grenis was unaware he was about to go from heir apparent to outcast. Johnny, Johnson said, greeting Grenis excitedly, I'm going to do a leverage buyout. Grenis sunk into a chair in a state of shock. He walked out of Johnson's office an hour later, destroyed. He wondered if he was dreaming. He went to his hotel room and sat for several minutes in silence. He would have to do something, he thought. Just have to. Dinner was being cleared away from the long T-shaped table when, at 8.30, Johnson rose to speak. As you all know, we've got another item on the agenda tonight, Johnson said. I think we'll turn to that now, and that's the future direction of this company. It's plain as the nose on your face that this company is wildly undervalued, Johnson said. We tried to put food and tobacco business together, and it hasn't worked. Diversification is not working. As a result, we've studied alternative ways to increasing shareholder values. Here he paused. The only way to recognize these values, I believe, is through a leveraged buyout. There was a crashing silence. The wolf is not at the door, Johnson said. This is simply the best option that I think is best for our shareholders. I believe it is a doable transaction, and it can be done at prices much higher than the present stock price. We're not far enough along this road to make firm conclusions or make a proposal at this point, though. Silence. Vernon Jordan, the civil rights leader come Washington lawyer, was the first to speak. Look, Ross, if you go ahead with this thing, there's a real likelihood this company is going to be put in play. Somebody might come along and buy this company for more than you can pay. You might not win. I mean, who knows what could happen? That's my point, Vernon, Johnson said. This company should be in play. It should be sold to the highest bidder. If somebody wants to offer $85 a share or more than we can pay, then we've all done an even better job for our shareholders. The management of this company is not dedicated to retaining its jobs at the expense of the shareholders. 
It all sounded so sensible, so reasonable. But the directors might have asked a few more questions had they known of Johnson's plans for the company, of the favors he had doled out behind their backs, or of the unprecedented cut of the LBO's expected profits he had wrung from his hungry Wall Street partners at Shearson, Lehman, Hutton. But those and other matters would only come to light at the most inopportune moments for them all. The board's debate was anticlimactic. If Johnson had gone this far, they had no choice but to let him continue. Hugel said, if you wish to proceed, the board will have to issue a press release tomorrow morning. The press release was a worrisome development. Lifting the veil of secrecy was ordinarily enough to kill a developing buyout in its cradle. Once disclosed, corporate raiders or other unwanted suitors were free to make a run at the company before management had a chance to prepare its own bid. As the press release was being prepared, Johnson badly wanted to insert the price they were considering, $75 a share. Without a number, Johnson feared the stock would rise out of control, perhaps forcing his group to bid more than it wanted to. Johnson didn't need to do the arithmetic to get nervous. $17 billion. The largest corporate takeover in history. Three times greater than the largest LBO ever attempted. A public announcement would mean publicity, lots of it, and the specter of competing bids, and all the very next morning. Johnson thought he had braced himself for this, but now the full impact hit him. Things, he warned an aide in a post-midnight phone call, are moving faster than we thought. Thursday morning, all hell broke loose when the announcement crossed the Dow Jones News Service at 9.35. Moments after the release went out, the first of hundreds of calls began flooding the switchboard from wire services and newspapers, radio and television stations. The company's building remained under media siege all day. It was the biggest story of the day, soon to be the biggest business story of the year. The trendy shopping center on Atlanta's north side was suddenly the center of the business world. It had been a hectic week for Henry Kravis. Philip Morris's sudden attack on Kraft presented him with a perfect opportunity to ride to the Chicago company's rescue. But as busy as Kravis's week had been, it was about to get far busier. He was on the phone when his secretary put a note in front of him, RJR going private at 75 a share. Kravis nearly dropped the receiver. For a second, he was speechless. It couldn't be true. Then he began to grow angry. I can't believe this, he fumed. We gave him the idea. He wouldn't even meet with us. Eric Gleacher of Morgan Stanley was leaning back in his desk chair when he saw the headline cross his computer screen. Steve Waters was in Gleacher's office within seconds. Both men were stunned as they stared at the screen. RJR? A deal? Without Morgan Stanley? And look at the price, Gleacher said. At $75 a share, they quickly agreed. Johnson was stealing the company. Jeff Beck was floored by Johnson's announcement. An LBO? Without Drexel? Without me? It made no sense. Beck took a call from Kravis. What the hell is going on, Kravis said. I don't know, Henry. You know we wanted to meet with him. Let me call and get the lay of the land, and I'll get back to you. Beck quickly called Johnson in Atlanta. Hey, man, what's going on, Beck asked, the exasperation clear in his voice. Well, Johnson said, we're going to buy the company. You know, it's nice to read about on the tape, Ross. I don't understand you. Beck wasn't even trying to hide his irritation. Now it was Johnson's turn to show his irritation. We've already got our primary partners on this, Jeff, and that's that. The Mad Dog had been muzzled. One of the first calls Kravis took that morning was from Dick Beatty. In the merger world, Beatty was known as Kravis's consigliere. For 15 years, he had been one of his most trusted outside advisors. 
Dick, why in the world is he doing this with Shearson, of all people, Kravis said. They've never done a deal. Dick Beatty knew that all too well. After Kohlberg Kravis, his second largest client was Shearson Lehman Hutton. By Thursday afternoon, the Johnson camp realized it might not be healthy to have an angry Drexel Burnham rattling about Wall Street looking for an entree into the deal. Jim Welch called Jeff Beck three times in an attempt to convince Drexel to either sit on the sidelines altogether or come into the deal with them, but Beck remained irate at Johnson's snub. As a result, Drexel, the largest piece of financial artillery on the Wall Street battlefield, was free to be used by a competing bidder, and Beck had no doubt who that would be, Henry Kravis. The assignment would ultimately be worth more than $50 million to Drexel. Money aside, Beck couldn't help thinking how much fun it would be beating the pants off Ross Johnson. On the 17th floor of an anonymous-looking office building tucked near the Staten Island Ferry in Lower Manhattan sat a chubby investment banker for Solomon Brothers named Bill Strong. Strong stared intently as details of Johnson's curious proposal inched into the public domain. Like every other banker on Wall Street, Strong was intrigued by the possibilities opened by Johnson's proposal, and he was convinced that 75 was way too low. He got excited. Solomon had had more than his share of merchant banking disasters in the last year, but this deal, if done right, could erase a lot of bad memories. Friday morning, Strong pitched his idea to John Goodfriend, Solomon's autocratic chairman. Goodfriend, often skeptical of his enthusiastic young dealmakers, listened with interest and okayed the plan. Strong was jubilant. A meeting to flesh out details was set for Monday morning. In the meantime, Strong assembled a team of 10 bankers and analysts to pour over RJR Nabisco data that weekend. He wanted to be ready to move first thing Monday morning. By Thursday afternoon, RJR Nabisco's executive suite was swarming with people. The Shearson bankers Tom Hill and Jim Stern, directors milling about drinking in the excitement, and teams from Lazard Frere and Dylan Reed, all summoned by Hugel the night before. Johnson came over to shake the bankers' hands as if it were a backyard barbecue rather than an LBO. To the bankers, yet to grasp the enormity of the task before them, Johnson seemed without a care in the world. Both banks agreed to represent the committee for a fee of $14 million apiece. Their job would be to analyze any bid from Johnson and advise the committee whether it was fair to shareholders. They would do the same in the unlikely event other bids cropped up. The meetings all broke up in mid-afternoon. Johnson sat alone in his office, opening mail and tending to paperwork. For a moment, there was little else to do. Gee, told Martin, I feel like I brought my harp to the party and nobody asked me to play. Shearson was on full alert to any sign of a competing bid. It was just 30 hours since Johnson's initial announcement, but Hill knew every investment banker on Wall Street would be looking for ways to top their $75 price. So far, no one had. With any luck, no one would. Hill hated the waiting. It made him uneasy. He had to find out for certain about Henry Kravis. He dialed Kravis's number. In a split second, he knew the truth. In Kravis's venomous tone, he recognized the realization of his worst fears. Henry Kravis wanted RJR Nabisco, and he wanted it badly. Hill hung up stunned. Something had gone horribly wrong. He had to think fast. Maybe they could head off Kravis. Maybe they could placate him. Whatever the case, they had to meet with him. Hill called Kravis back and set up a meeting for later that night with himself and Peter Cohen. The Friday night meeting resolved nothing. Cohen argued for Shearson's right to do the deal and tried to make Kravis understand why RJR Nabisco was so vital to Shearson's future. 
Listening to Cohen, Kravis was reminded how sick he was of the steadily mounting competition from firms wanting a piece of his business in LBOs. One part of him wanted to teach all of them, particularly Peter Cohen, a very rough lesson. Kravis did raise the possibility of Shearson and Kohlberg Kravis teaming up in a joint bid for the company. But neither Kravis nor Cohen, their egos fully intact, relished that idea. As they got up to leave, Cohen suggested that they should talk more next week. Afterward, Cohen and Hill retreated to Hill's Upper East Side apartment. There they called Johnson and relayed the news. Cohen played down the confrontation, insisting that he planned to meet again with Kravis on Monday. Kravis wasn't waiting around for another meeting with Peter Cohen. By Friday evening, he had assembled a team of investment banks to advise and finance a competing offer for RJR Nabisco. Heading the list was Drexel Burnham Lambert. But Drexel's future was a question. An indictment was rumored to be near as a result of the Ivan Bosky insider trading probe. To cover himself, he decided to hire Merrill Lynch as a backup fundraiser. Morgan Stanley, the bank of Steve Waters and Eric Gleacher, was a natural choice for the routine number crunching and advisory work Colbert Kravis would need. Three investment banks made for a cumbersome, not to mention expensive, team. But Kravis decided to hire a fourth, the red-hot merger boutique Wasserstein Perella. Wasserstein, arguably Wall Street's most brilliant takeover tactician, would be invaluable in any major deal. But Kravis hired him as a defensive move. Left out of the deal, Wasserstein could perhaps assemble a competing bidding group. Hiring the investment banks had gone smoothly, but Kravis had encountered a rude surprise when he began assembling the team of commercial banks he would need to raise the $10 billion or more of permanent financing. He had called Bankers Trust, his longtime banker, and a leading source of takeover financing. But Bankers Trust had told him they weren't sure they could commit to working with him. Kravis was floored. Nothing like this had ever happened before. The only possible reason was that Peter Cohen had already hired Bankers Trust on an exclusive basis, an exceedingly rare and cutthroat move. This was a crisis of the first order. Cut off from its regular source of bank money, Kravis's army had no bullets. Henry Kravis's suspicions to the contrary, Shearson had not, in fact, demanded an exclusive arrangement with Bankers Trust or any other bank. But that perception strongly affected Kravis's actions. All day Saturday, Kravis pondered what to do about RJR Nabisco. He regarded the situation with Bankers Trust as clear evidence Shearson was trying to prevent major banks from funding a competing bid for Johnson's company. On top of that, Kravis had learned that the American Express board was scheduled to meet on Monday. That could mean only one thing. Shearson needed its corporate parents' approval for the massive bridge loan it required to fund the buyout. Everything pointed to Shearson and Johnson's wrapping up this deal quickly. Wasserstein advised Kravis to attack, and fast, by making an immediate tender offer. A meeting of the entire Kravis team was set for the next day, Saturday. Fast, 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 thought Kravis. Everything had to move fast. It was during that weekend that the first boxes of financial data began arriving at Lazard Frere and Dylan Reed, the vanguard of a wave of numbers the bankers would receive in coming weeks to help them determine RJR Nabisco's fair price. Inside, they also found a half dozen financial studies authored by outsiders, 
most sent in attempts to cajole Johnson into some type of restructuring. Not a single valuation put RJR Nabisco's value below $80 a share. Most were closer to $90. All the bankers knew RJR Nabisco had fat to cut, but they hadn't expected to see valuations like this. On Sunday afternoon, Kravis's team of investment bankers convened in Kohlberg Kravis's boardroom at 4 o'clock. They considered different options, but clearly the group leaned toward the tender offer. What price? Kravis asked. Steve Waters counseled $90 a share. It would immediately put Johnson on the defensive and make it appear Johnson was stealing the company. If so, they could hope to drive a crucial wedge between Johnson and his board. If we come on strong, Waters added, he might fold. As the discussion wound down, Kravis and his associates retired to his office. It was decision time. As Kravis closed his office door, no one realized that a very similar meeting was taking place that moment, just six blocks north. Bill Strong and a half dozen other Solomon investment bankers met John Goodfriend in the darkened, leather-walled library of his Fifth Avenue apartment. All right, Goodfriend said. Tell me what I need to know about this thing. Working through the weekend, Bill Strong's Solomon team had come to the same conclusion as Henry Kravis. To make a move on R.J. or Nabisco, one needed to move aggressively. Strong proposed that Solomon quickly and secretly accumulate a large position in R.J. or Nabisco stock, a toehold, with an eye toward launching an unsolicited takeover bid. This would give Solomon bargaining leverage, Strong argued. It was exactly the aggressive move the team thought Solomon should be making. But would Goodfriend do it? R.J. R. Nabisco was to be the test of Goodfriend's resolve. His entire investment banking department, he knew, was pumped up to get a piece of the action Ross Johnson had created. Goodfriend was skeptical, and as Strong finished his presentation, Goodfriend attacked, looking for any weaknesses in the case. But at the end of the night, the bankers left Goodfriend's apartment in various stages of euphoria. Goodfriend had okayed the idea. Into the wee hours, the Solomon bankers exchanged congratulatory phone calls. Finally, after years of talk, Solomon Brothers was actually going to do something. In Henry Kravis's office, he phoned his partner, George Roberts, in San Francisco and tried to convince him of the need for an immediate tender offer. A tender offer, he argued, was the only way Kohlberg Kravis could be certain of getting its foot in the door. Moreover, he continued, it wouldn't be an outright hostile bid. For one thing, Johnson had already put the company in play and Kravis intended to make completion of the tender offer conditioned on approval of RJR Nabisco's board. It was an enormous decision. This deal was three times larger than anything they had ever done before. It was also the first time they had launched a bid without the aid of a friendly management team. Well, Robert said, let's sleep on it, then look at it in the morning. If neither of us has any real reservations, we'll go ahead. For all Henry Kravis's feverish preparations, the management group itself had taken the weekend off. Johnson hadn't worried about the threat from Kravis. Cohen could take care of him. Anyway, what could Kravis do? He certainly wasn't going to bid $18 billion for this company without management, Johnson felt. He even discounted rumors circulating on Sunday night that Kravis would make a tender offer Monday morning. Peter Cohen also heard the rumor and was equally disbelieving. We're supposed to meet with Henry tomorrow, he said. Why would he do something like that without the benefit of another conversation? It doesn't make any sense. It's just rumors. 
The Monday editions of both the Wall Street Journal and the New York Times carried the news that Kohlberg Kravis was set to launch a $90 a share tender offer for RJR Nabisco. Kravis was livid when he arrived at his office. Homing in on a reference to Drexel Burnham in the Times story, he had instantly fingered Jeff Beck as the culprit who leaked the news to the press. Eventually, Kravis came to believe there were dual sources for the leaks, Beck and Wasserstein, one for each newspaper. Whatever the truth, both Beck and Wasserstein fervently denied being the sources of any leaks. Whatever reservations Kravis had harbored toward the tender offer were now moot. The leak had forced his hand. He had to go forward with the offer. He directed that the bid be formally announced at 8 o'clock. Ross Johnson was just about to sit down to his breakfast when John Martin burst into his apartment. The Kravis thing, Martin said. It's true. No, Johnson said. No, it couldn't be true, he stammered. It made no sense. Ninety dollars a share? It was insane. Johnson immediately thought of Cohen's meeting with Kravis. Something must have happened Friday to set him off. Something he wasn't told about. Kravis's announcement went off like a bomb in John Goodfriend's lap. RJR Nabisco's stock skyrocketed on news of the Kravis bid, forcing Goodfriend to put Salomon's plan to buy RJR Nabisco's stock on hold. By evening, the previous night's meeting had receded into the Solomon banker's consciousness like a bad dream. Theodore J. Forsman, anyone would say, was a man who had everything. Ted Forsman lived in a world of chauffeured Mercedes, corporate jets with gold-plated bathroom fixtures, and plush liquor and television stock helicopters that whisked him over Manhattan traffic. Through hard work and a dash of luck, his 10-year-old firm, Forsman Little & Company, a specialist in leverage buyouts, now owned firms boasting $8 billion in revenues. But Ted Forsman was a deeply angry man, burning with the resentment that friends and business associates knew best to steer clear of. That morning, Forsman was to be reminded yet again of his obsession, Unfolding his morning copy of the Times, his eyes were drawn immediately to the headline. Kohlberg bid is seen for RJR. Those fucking assholes, he said to himself. They're doing it again. Forsman's arch-rival was Henry Kravis. To Forsman, Kravis was nothing less than a Wall Street Faust who sold his soul for a pile of junk bonds and a new takeover every Monday morning. In his worst moments, Forsman referred to Kravis as that little fart or the little bastard. The reason Kravis can pay these incredible sums is that his money isn't real, Forsman would say in exasperated tones. It's phony. It's funny money. These guys are getting away with murder, and nobody knows it. And every new Kravis deal furthered a machine that Forsman feared was threatening the economy. Almost alone among major acquirers, Forsman Little refused to use junk bonds. The triumph of junk bonds, though, was more than an affront to Forsman's morals. He was laying waste to his business as well. Forsman found himself being outbid for companies where once he had no competition. Monday morning, Ted Forsman knew what he had to do. Suddenly, the Nabisco deal wasn't just a big deal. It had become the deal. It would, he realized, be the culmination of his five-year crusade to show the world the truth about junk bonds and Henry Kravis. It would be Ted Forsman in the white hat against Henry Kravis in the black. Fuck him. This is not going to be the next KKR deal, Forsman vowed to himself. I know Ross Johnson. I know Jim Robinson. Henry Kravis will not run off with this deal. Pandemonium reigned at Shearson Monday morning when the stunned members of the management group gathered. Rather than face the obvious folly of their earlier preparation, Cohen, Hill, and the others directed their anger toward Kravis. Everyone had a theory why Kravis had jumped the gun. Johnson didn't particularly care about the intricacies of Shearson's Wall Street rivalries. 
and as Cohen and Hill began plotting a counterattack, he was too shaken to listen. Well, Johnson said, I guess this is over. This is the end. I mean, who can compete with that kind of offer? Steve Goldstone could tell it was time to explain some things to his client. Johnson's interests weren't necessarily the same as Shearson's. If Johnson played his cards right, he might yet come out of this with a buyout he could live with. He had a number of options, including joining forces with Kravis, a fact Goldstone was sure Cohen was well aware of. Kravis's bid was Cohen's nightmare come true. But, unlike Ross Johnson, Cohen wasn't giving any thought to surrender. It simply wasn't in his nature. As information on Kravis's bid trickled in that day, Cohen and Hill realized it wasn't as formidable as they first had feared. For one thing, the bid wasn't all cash. Kravis had put up just $79 a share in cash, with the remainder coming from securities Kravis valued at $11 a share. Shearson, Cohen figured, could counter by adding paper, too. Amid the confusion, one other fact was becoming clear. Shearson couldn't fight Kravis alone. A bid north of $90 would require an equity investment, a down payment, in the neighborhood of $2.5 billion. Their choice seemed to be between Solomon Brothers and First Boston. But Cohen was buddies with Tom Strauss, president of Solomon, so Solomon it would be. Dick Beatty called Peter Cohen around 4 o'clock that afternoon and encouraged Cohen to keep the channel of communication open and meet with Kravis. After getting Johnson's okay, Cohen agreed, and a meeting was set for Tuesday morning at a neutral venue, the dining room at the Plaza Hotel. The atmosphere at Tuesday morning's breakfast meeting between Cohen and Kravis was no worse than that inside any commercial meat locker. But if Cohen was combative, he was also a realist. He pitched a compromise and the possibility of Shearson and Kravis splitting the deal 50-50. Kravis wouldn't even consider it. As at their first meeting, Kravis attempted to size up Cohen. The man was out of his element, he decided. He knew Cohen had attempted no more than one or two buyouts in his career. While Cohen and Kravis glared over their coffee cups, Johnson decided to take matters into his own hands. Through a call to Steve Waters, Johnson arranged to meet Kravis at 4 o'clock that afternoon. After his breakfast with Cohen, Kravis caucused with Beattie and Roberts, who had flown in the night before from San Francisco. There was no earthly reason for Shearson to be in this deal, they agreed. Ross Johnson had the management expertise. Kohlberg Kravis had the buyout expertise. There had to be a way to get rid of Shearson. The obvious solution was to offer it some lesser role in the deal. Kravis favored some kind of advisory fee and maybe a chance to buy a piece of the action. At 4 o'clock, Johnson was ushered into Kravis's corner office and met George Roberts for the first time. The conversation was general. The three men wanted to feel one another out. When Kravis and Roberts talked about their operating philosophies, Johnson was impressed. They seemed to know much more about financial structures and money raising than Cohen's people. Johnson replied with observations about his company, which the partners, thirsty for information about their prey, listened to intently. Johnson explained that he was looking for a structure in which he would retain a significant control of his company. No, Roberts said, shaking his head, Colbert Kravis didn't operate that way. We're not going to do any deal where management controls it, Roberts stated. We'll work with you, but we have no interest in losing control. From the look in Johnson's eyes, Roberts could tell it wasn't the message he wanted to hear. They'd been talking about an hour when Johnson trotted out to take a call. 
He returned a minute later, apologizing. That was Jimmy and Peter. I'm late to meet with your buddy Ted Forsman. Johnson smiled. It didn't hurt for these two to know he had options. As he left, Johnson brought up the prospect of further talks with Shearson. I hope you can work things out, he said. No one party should be looking to get some great edge over the other party. Work things out, you know. When Johnson walked out a few minutes past six, Kravis and Roberts agreed it was time to make their move. In a phone call to Jim Robinson, Kravis detailed the proposal. Colbert Kravis would acquire RJR Nabisco. In return, Shearson would receive a one-time fee of $125 million from Colbert Kravis and an option to buy a 10% stake in the company. Kravis said he'd like an answer by midnight. At half past six, Johnson arrived at Forceman Little, accompanied by Tom Hill. Johnson told Forceman that he had just come from Kravis's office, and the mention of Kravis's name set Forceman off on the spiel. For nearly half an hour, he pontificated on the evils of junk bonds, the sins of Henry Kravis, and the way Forceman Little could save Wall Street. Johnson listened, secretly amused. Tom Hill left the room to take a call from Cohen, relaying news of Kravis's $125 million offer. That was them again, Hill announced when he returned to the conference room. We have received the most insulting offer. Forceman was confused. It was clear Hill meant Kravis. Was Hill negotiating with Kravis on his phone? What was going on here? Johnson and Hill soon left, leaving Forceman perplexed. Was Johnson negotiating with Kravis? If so, why was he talking to Forceman Little? Maybe he would find out later. Hill had invited Forceman's crew over that evening to talk about joining forces. Johnson returned to his 48th floor offices to find Cohen in a rage at the Kravis offer. For all the sound and fury, the Kravis offer brought into the open the unacknowledged rift between Shearson and Johnson, which had now lasted nearly two days since Kravis's announcement the previous morning. Johnson still hadn't openly affirmed his commitment to go ahead with the Shearson offer. Would Johnson stay with Shearson or leap to the Kravis camp? He met that night with the men he had chosen to pursue the great adventure. After some open debate on the issue, they agreed that staying with Shearson was the right thing to do. The crisis had passed. At the height of the evening's chaos, Ted Forsman arrived on the 48th floor. The place was crawling with people. The Forsman group was escorted into a windowless conference room packed with more than a dozen lawyers and investment bankers, as well as Johnson and Cohen. Immediately, the Shearson troops began pelting Forsman with questions about how to fight Henry Kravis. At the mention of that name, Forsman launched into the spiel for at least the second time that day. In his fervor, he didn't notice that slowly the room was emptying until there were only three of the original group. Where'd everybody go, he asked. No one knew. He wasn't sure what to do. He waited. For more than an hour, there was no sign. Something funny's going on here, he warned. All evening, Cohen and Johnson had been trying to contact Kravis to reject his offer. Finally, at 12.15, Johnson phoned him at home. Henry, I'm disappointed in you, he said. That's a lousy offer you made to them. But if Kravis had something better to propose, he was still welcome to do so. Kravis hung up, worried, and quickly conferred with George Roberts. Kravis was acutely aware that he had never made a major takeover bid without the analytical help of a management team that knew its company inside and out. He needed Ross Johnson. Besides, a bidding war at these levels could cost the winner billions of dollars. A second approach was called for. Kravis dialed Cohen and suggested they talk in the morning. Cohen agreed to talk, but right then, 
even though it was already 12.30. Cohen didn't mention that he had Ted Forsman cooling his heels in a back room. The air was electric inside Johnson's office as the Shearson group awaited Kravis's arrival. When Kravis, Roberts, and Beatty were escorted into the executive suite, Johnson and Jim Robinson arose to make their exit. We'll be down the hall if you need us. The meeting did not go well. Cohen could not hide his anger about Kravis's offer, which he considered an insulting bribe. And Tom Hill attacked Kohlberg Kravis, warning that if they were perceived as a hostile bidder, it would have implications for the future that could seriously affect their ability to do business. Kravis was infuriated at the unmistakable threats. Down the hall in Ed Horrigan's corner office, it was past two o'clock when Johnson and Robinson decided to meet Forsman again. They told him about the meeting with Kravis going on down the hall. Disappointment wasn't a strong enough word for Forsman's feelings at the moment. It bordered on betrayal. He had so hoped these people had principles. He had wanted so badly to believe they could see through Kravis as he had. Now, he realized, he had been wrong. We don't think the meeting's going anywhere, Robinson said. Johnson piped up. No, we don't think it will. Management is not going to go with those guys. Forstman thought, then why are you down there talking with them? Well, Forstman finally said, thank you for at least telling me. Forstman returned to the conference room, told his team what had gone on, and said, let's get the fuck out of here. But Jeff Boisey, a Goldman Sachs banker, stopped him. He saw an opportunity in the air of desperation he sensed about the Shearson team. If they can't work out something with KKR, they're really going to need us. We could dictate our own terms. So Forstman's team waited. The talks in Johnson's smoke-filled office were going nowhere. In theory, it was in both sides' interest to negotiate some form of partnership. But partnership clearly meant different things to different people. For an hour, they swerved from issue to issue, never finding agreement, never mushrooming into outright confrontation. The question rose, for instance, which investment bank would supervise the post-takeover bond offerings? Kravis saw Drexel as the natural choice. We're not taking a backseat to Drexel, Cohen said. That's not even negotiable. By three o'clock, it was obvious that no agreement would be reached. Kravis and Roberts left. Ross Johnson expected to return to his office and find the situation with Kravis diffused. He was shocked to find the talks had fallen through. He couldn't believe it. In four separate conversations now, Cohen hadn't been able to reach some kind of compromise with Kravis. Johnson, more worried about his company than Wall Street rivalries, began to have serious doubts about Cohen's brand of machismo. He was interrupted when someone stuck his head into the room and said Ted Forsman was about to leave. Oh my God, Jim Robinson said, Teddy's still down there. Ted Forsman had had enough. As he and his advisors prepared to leave, he saw Cohen and a retinue of a half dozen people trotting down the hall toward him. Hey, partner, Cohen said, extending his arms in welcome toward Forsman. Let's go. Let's talk. Forsman realized instantly what had happened. The talks with Kravis had fallen through, and now Cohen needed Forsman little. After getting assurances that Kravis was completely out of the picture, there was some talk about strategy and tactics and how best to deal with a hostile Henry Kravis. And then somebody said it was four in the morning and didn't everyone have plenty of work tomorrow? Soon they rose and shook hands and headed for the elevators. As they did, Ted Forsman couldn't help thinking that no one had apologized for letting him sit in a room alone for more than three hours. The peace talks off, Cohen's troops prepare for war. With Kravis forging ahead with his $90 tender offer, every assumption underlying the management group's $75 bid had to be thrown out. 
A small mountain of revised analysis was already underway. New divestiture estimates were calculated, and talks aimed at securing $15 billion from the bank group were restarted. Bringing Solomon into the deal as a full partner topped Cohen's list of priorities Wednesday morning. Johnson slept late that day, then hustled down to Shearson's offices in Battery Park City to meet with Cohen and the Solomon Chieftains, good friend and Tom Strauss. On Thursday morning, Henry Kravis was worried. His tender offer would officially begin the next day, Friday. It wouldn't be long until Cohen and Johnson regrouped and put their own bid on the table, he knew. And when that happened, Kravis would have to be ready to go higher. But before he did, he needed to know a lot more about Ross Johnson's company. What he needed was someone who knew RJR Nabisco, a wise man. He hoped that man might be Tylee Wilson. Later that day, he called Wilson in Jacksonville, Florida, and they met on Friday morning at 10 o'clock. But Kravis found Wilson's knowledge of the company outdated and his zest for revenge too apparent. Tylee Wilson's career as a Colbert Kravis consultant was over before it began. Thursday afternoon, Peter Cohen and Tom Strauss met with Ted Forsman at Forsman Little. Jeff Boise, the Goldman Sachs dealmaker, was also there. Tom Hill had passed his suspicions about Boise on to Cohen. Boise and his people had shown too keen an interest, Hill thought, in obtaining confidential information about Nabisco businesses. He suspected that Goldman wanted to make a run at RJR Nabisco itself. At the meeting, and in a Friday morning phone call with Boise, Cohen began to believe Hill was right. Friday afternoon, Forsman arrived at Shearson with his brother Nick, Boise, and Steve Fraden, his lawyer. This is how we think a Shearson-Solomon-Forsman-Little offer would look, Cohen said, handing Forsman a copy of the document. Forsman leafed through it, but the numbers inside it meant nothing to him. Somewhere among the figures, he found Forsman-Little's $3 billion sandwich between layers of chunk bonds. It made his skin crawl, and it got worse. It was clear Forsman-Little didn't control the bidding group, and the Shearson proposal seemed to contain clause after clause whose sole purpose was blocking that from ever happening. No hard feelings, Peter, but this just won't work. Well, that's all right, said Cohen. We'll just rework it. He got up and left the room. When Cohen left, Forsman turned to Boise. Jeff, what can we do about this? We can't even talk about this. There's nothing to negotiate, you know? They just don't even get it. They decided Forsman should propose his own capital structure to Shearson. Cohen agreed, and Forsman and his advisors left. Returning to New York from a trip to Madrid, John Goodfriend came straight from the airport to Solomon's lower Wall Street headquarters. His advisors immediately presented him with a copy of Johnson's management agreement with the comment, you're never going to believe this. Goodfriend read it and was startled. The agreement was far more lucrative than Cohen had hinted. Arriving at Shearson a half hour later, Goodfriend didn't wait long to bring up the management agreement with Cohen. We as a team will have enormous difficulty unless that package can be reworked at a lower level. Peter, it's just unseemly. John, I promise you it will be dealt with, Cohen said. But, he added, it made little sense to revise the pack until they had a better sense of what levels the bidding might rise to. Relieved, Goodfriend agreed he could wait. Teams of Shearson and Solomon bankers worked late into the night Friday and all day Saturday. Cohen spent much of Saturday looking for Forsman, who ignored Cohen's messages as he agonized about whether this deal felt right for Forsman Little. Cohen finally reached Forsman at his apartment that evening. Over the phone, he outlined a new capital structure, which gave Forsman 50% of the group's equity and half the control of the company. The proposal downplayed the junk bond aspects of the earlier proposal and promised Forsman Little a greater voice in the future management of RJR. Just as important, Forsman Little would receive senior debt rather than junior debt, roughly the difference between an American Express card and an IOU. Forsman was genuinely surprised. Peter, that's a gigantic step forward, he said. That's great. 
Let's get together tomorrow, then, Cohen said. All evening, Forsman's people analyzed Cohen's proposal. It looked promising. They all agreed. As the business press devoted more space to the great takeover battles of the 80s, the importance of manipulating its coverage grew. By the end of the decade, each entrant into a takeover fight routinely hired a PR firm to work alongside its investment bankers and attorneys. For years, Wall Street public relations had been dominated by a single firm, Kexton Company, led by its well-connected founder, Gershon Kext. Then, in the late 1980s, came the first serious challenger to Kext's rule in years. Linda Robinson was no ordinary flack. She was a tall, willowy, strawberry blonde with a knowing smile, a grueling work schedule, and an obvious love of gab. In no time, she became a force to be reckoned with on the street, although she bristled at any suggestion that it was because she was Jim Robinson's wife. Hired by Ross Johnson within hours of his initial LBO announcement, Linda Robinson found her old friend's PR effort in disarray, a situation she immediately began working on. But she also had bigger fish to fry. Among the Robinsons' close social friends were the Henry Kravises. The two couples' Connecticut spreads were only 20 minutes apart. Since Kravis first announced his bid, Linda Robinson had been secretly lobbying him to team up with Johnson. Linda's always cuddled up to Henry, says one of Kravis's aides, so Henry starts getting calls from Linda every day, and he starts talking to her. She was playing matchmaker. Sunday afternoon, Forsman arrived at Shearson with his brother Nick and Steve Frayden. Forsman had tactfully left Boise behind. They were joined by Peter Cohen and John Goodfriend. As they gathered, Forsman didn't know whether the day's talks would end with a joint agreement to fight Kravis or a one-way ticket out of the deal. Within minutes, the picture cleared. The proposed capital structure Cohen laid out was nothing like he had suggested the night before. Ted Forsman was the picture of accommodation, but inside he suspected this was the last straw. Forsman and his team knew they couldn't agree to anything discussed. The capital structure, Ross Johnson's $2 billion management contract, the fees to be paid the participants, or the governance issues. As they walked outside of their waiting car, Steve Frayden wondered aloud what their next step was. Well, Ted Forsman says, let's go uptown and call Boise and tell him where we are. Where are we, Frayden asked. You know where we are, Steve Forsman said. We're out. In one way, an LBO is a lot like buying a used car. The car buyer wants to know more than just what's in the ad. He wants to talk to the owner, check under the hood, go for a ride around the block. For an LBO buyer, a thorough inspection is equally crucial. His success depends on determining exactly how much debt the target company can take on and figuring precisely what budgets can be cut and what businesses sold to pay down that debt quickly. But what if you're Henry Kravis and the fellows driving the car won't even let you kick the tires? This was the dilemma Kravis faced. Information was the key to success, and Kravis was on the outside looking in. There is a process by which LBO buyers inspect a target company. It's called due diligence. When Kravis worked with a management group, due diligence was a breeze. Confidential documents were instantly produced, and executives were always available to brainstorm on the best ways to reduce overhead and increase cash flows. The special committee had arranged for Kravis to begin due diligence and start interviewing RJR executives at New York's Plaza Hotel for two days, beginning Monday, October 31. Kravis's team spent all weekend preparing, but by Tuesday night they were irritated and exasperated. Johnson's men seemed to be suffering from collective memory loss. The easy questions they answered. But when probed for a judgment and opinion on where a budget could be cut, they clammed up with an, I'll get back to you on that. After making farewell phone calls to Cohen and Goodfriend Monday morning, Forstman told himself he wasn't sorry things hadn't worked out. Dealing with Shearson had been as frustrating as any experience of his life. 
Then Jeff Boise called. Boise wasn't about to give up on RJ or Nabisco. He had three of Goldman's best clients chomping at the bit to get a piece of the deal. The consortium Boise envisioned would be a dream team. All he needed to complete it was someone interested in buying the tobacco operations. That someone was going to be Ted Forsman. Forsman just had to be convinced, and Boise knew all the right buttons to push. As he listened to Boise, an image began to form in Forsman's mind. The junk bond hordes are at the city gates, Forsman thought. We could stop them, once and for all. This is where we could stand at the bridge and push the barbarians back. Wouldn't that be phenomenal? He would do it. Slowly, Johnson's group moved toward assembling a bit of its own. On Monday afternoon, two schools of thought were forming as to the best way to approach the bid. The Solomon team, led by Goodfriend and Strauss, were leaning toward an immediate bid, something around $92 a share, just enough to top Kravis's $90. Another faction, led by Steve Goldstone and Tom Hill, judged the approach short-sighted. Somehow, they had to bring a swift end to the process, a single, sharp, decisive blow that would knock out Kravis and secure the board once and for all. A bid of $100 a share wasn't out of the realm of possibility to Hill and Goldstone. Goldstone felt the group was leaning toward his position. On Tuesday evening, the due diligence sessions completed, Kravis and Roberts discussed their next move. Their bid was at a crossroads. After seizing the initiative from Johnson's group a week before, they were losing momentum. Nothing seemed to be going right. Due diligence had been a disaster. If that weren't bad enough, Kravis was hearing ominous rumblings among his investors, upset at the aggressive tack Kravis had taken. Of all his woes, though, none bothered Kravis more than the press. Kohlberg Kravis was getting killed. Every story seemed to take a shot or two at Kravis, and the attacks deeply wounded him. This kind of publicity could also ruin their business and bring down the wrath of Washington. The due diligence, the worried investors, the press, there had to be a way to end this. Maybe, he and Roberts agreed, it was time to jumpstart talks with Johnson. As they discussed it, Kravis found himself rationalizing the benefits of a joint bid. However distasteful he found approaching Johnson on bended knee, Kravis knew it was the right thing to do. He looked at his telephone messages. As usual, there were several calls from Linda Robinson. Jim Robinson's wife seemed to have Johnson's ear. He picked up the phone. Linda Robinson was glad to hear from Kravis. As far as she was concerned, the whole fight was getting out of control. There was no earthly reason Kravis couldn't do this deal with Shearson and Solomon. Their disagreements had nothing to do with shareholder values or fiduciary duties. It was all a test of wills among an intensely competitive clique of macho Park Avenue bullies and pinstripes. I'll try to set something up, Linda Robinson said. She called Johnson Wednesday morning, excited. He saw no reason not to join forces with Kravis. Johnson okayed a meeting as long as it was only Kravis, Roberts, he, and Robinson. And if it was totally confidential. Not even Cohen would be brought in. Linda Robinson relayed this news back to Kravis. Look, Kravis responded, there's no point in us getting together at all if we can't deal with some of these issues ahead of time. Okay, Robinson said, what are the issues? Kravis wanted majority control of the equity and board, but soon consented when Robinson insisted on evenly splitting both. It was the price he would have to pay for peace. But on a third issue, he refused to compromise. Drexel had to run the books on the bond offerings, he said. 
Robinson assured Kravis that Johnson would go with whoever was best. No problem. Three points, three agreements. Both Kravis and Robinson were encouraged by their swift progress. What was needed now, they agreed, was a summit. A meeting was set for six o'clock at the Plaza Hotel. When Johnson relayed news of the meeting to Jim Robinson, the American Express chief insisted that Cohen be included. Johnson reluctantly agreed. But as the trio walked to the plaza, Johnson warned Cohen to check his ego at the door. In a fifth floor suite at the plaza, the three men met Kravis and Roberts. In 30 minutes, they had the outlines of an agreement. Control of the RJR Nabisco board would be split 50-50. Neither side would have outright control. The stock would likewise be split down the middle, with Johnson's share coming out of the Shearson take. They also reached general agreement on the issues of fees to be paid and the inclusion of Drexel in the deal. In an hour, they were finished. The three major issues had been agreed to. All that remained was for the lawyers to join them and pound out final details. Johnson was thrilled. Thanks in large part to Linda Robinson, he had a deal. It wasn't perfect, Johnson told himself, but it sure beat losing or winning at some level that made it impossible to run his company. Johnson's group went back to Nine West to gather the final team of negotiators. Kravis and Roberts, who remained behind in the suite, were in high spirits. At Nine West, Johnson and Robinson decided to include Steve Goldstone, Shearson's attorney Jack Nussbaum, and either Tom Strauss or John Goodfriend of Solomon. Somehow, Robinson chose Strauss. The six members of Johnson's group hustled back to the plaza around nine o'clock. After 20 minutes, things were going smoothly, so Johnson, with no appetite for lawyerly details, excused himself, returned to his apartment where he showered and shaved, and prepared to head back to his office where he planned to do some serious partying. Little did he know that cracks were starting to appear in his carefully won $20 billion peace pact. At the plaza, Tom Strauss was arguing the ability and the right of Solomon to handle the bond offerings. Everyone in the room knew what he was really objecting to. Solomon hated Drexel. To lose history's largest bond offering to its arch-rival would be a profound embarrassment to the firm. But no one worried too much at that point. Surely they would reach a compromise later on. Besides, there was a more important matter to be dealt with, the management agreement. Goldstone hauled out a copy and waved it in front of Kravis. We'd like you to sign off on this, the lawyer said. Show it to Dick, Kravis said, referring to Beatty. Beatty retreated to a corner to scan it. After a few minutes, he motioned to Kravis and Roberts, and they retreated into an adjacent bedroom. You're not going to believe this, Beatty said. The lawyer had read the document quickly, but what he saw was incredible. The control, a veto in Johnson's hands, and most alarming of all, the astronomical returns Shearson was promising Johnson. Kravis was shocked. He knew Cohen was hungry to get into merchant banking, but giving Johnson control of the deal? It was unlike any LBO he had ever seen. The meeting adjourned with plans to reconvene at RJR Nabisco's offices an hour later. In the confusion, neither Goldstone nor Jack Nussbaum retrieved the management agreement from Beatty. When Kravis, Roberts, and Beatty stepped from the elevator at RJR Nabisco's headquarters, they were surprised to find the place packed with people. Linda Robinson was scurrying about with a draft copy of a press release. Johnson, scotch in hand, looking relaxed and refreshed, a puff handkerchief peeking jauntily from a chest pocket. Expecting to resume a set of tough negotiations, the Kravis group was startled to encounter something more akin to a fraternity mixer. For an hour, Johnson, Roberts, and Kravis discussed the fine points of RJR Nabisco. 
Finally, Kravis said, What's holding everything up? I don't know, Johnson said. But then, he wasn't especially concerned. These finishing up sessions always took time. In fact, Cohen was getting nowhere trying to fathom Solomon's objections to Drexel and searching in vain for a compromise to what came to be known as the Drexel problem. Months later, Tom Strauss acknowledged the central controversy. It lay in the esoteric world of the bond trader. When more than one bank agrees to underwrite a bond offering, a lead bank must be chosen to run the books. The lead bank is so noted by placing its name first on the left side of the subsequent tombstone advertisements and publications. Being on the left of the tombstone thus has powerful symbolic significance in the bond world. It all came down to this. John Goodfriend and Tom Strauss were prepared to scrap the largest takeover of all time because their firm's name would go on the right side, not the left side, of a tombstone advertisement buried among the stock tables at the back of the Wall Street Journal and the New York Times. Finally, it was clear Goodfriend wasn't budging. Around 3 o'clock, Kravis, Roberts, and Beattie began to reconsider the whole deal. If they couldn't work out the tombstone issue, how would they work out agreement on the real issues, like the management agreement? Kravis took Cohen aside, told him they were leaving, and that they should resume after daylight. By the time Kravis and Roberts departed, Johnson had already left, still confident that the impasse between Kravis and Solomon would be resolved by daylight. But when he finally reached his office around 10 o'clock the next morning, he found Cohen, Goodfriend, and the rest in an uproar. Not only was Kravis insisting that Drexel co-run the books, they said, but he had now raised questions about the management agreement and other new issues. Inside the conference room with the Shearson team, matters deteriorated quickly. If Kravis insisted on using Drexel, they agreed, there would be no joint deal. If there was no deal, it was time to bid. It had been 10 days since Kravis announced his $90 offer, Goodfriend and Strauss argued, and still the management team had no bid. They proposed to immediately loft a $92 counter bid. Of those present, the only serious opposition came from Steve Goldstone. To Goldstone, it was clear what this tactic was about. It was what traders called a fuck you bid. Simply put, Cohen and Goodfriend were so mad at Kravis, they wanted to shove an offer right in his face. Goldstone silently cursed these men and their giant egos. Goldstone tried to argue his case, but the bankers didn't think much of his arguments and prepared a counterbid. Robinson delivered the news in person to Kravis. Minutes later, the news of the management group's $92 bid crossed the Dow Jones News Service. Johnson remained in his office, shocked at the turn of events. Just 17 hours earlier, he had managed to get a peace treaty. Now the whole thing had fallen apart over greed, pure and simple greed. Far worse, Johnson realized, he had lost all control of his fate. As Johnson moped, Goldstone reluctantly dialed Peter Atkins to inform him of the group's new bid. He wanted to explain, but knew he didn't dare. When he finished, there were several moments of awkward silence. He knew Atkins must be struggling with how to deal with the surprise of such a low bid. Okay, Atkins finally said, I hear you. Friday afternoon, Kravis suffered by far the worst blow from the press so far. King of Wall Street blared the cover of Business Week out that day. Why KKR's Kravis may be headed for a fall, even if he wins the battle for RJR Nabisco. Kravis reacted as if he'd been publicly labeled a child molester. He withdrew into himself, morose. All weekend, Carolyn Rome tried to cheer him up, but it was no use. 
Nothing worked. Kravis was stricken. Then, at his lowest ebb, something happened that should have made him feel better. Kravis didn't know it, but the tides of public sentiment were about to shift strongly in his favor. For all the debate over its contents, the copy of Johnson's management agreement that fell into Kravis's hands hadn't changed much in two weeks. Despite good friends' complaints about its unseemly aspects, despite Jim Robinson's suggestions, and despite the fact that virtually everyone involved agreed it would be renegotiated, so far it hadn't. The Robinsons knew it had the potential to explode in Johnson's face. The agreement simply lay in state, a public relations time bomb ticking away. Friday afternoon, it went off. Linda Robinson took a call from a New York Times reporter preparing a story on the management agreement for Saturday's paper. It was clear he knew everything. The $2 billion, the free ride, even Solomon's opposition. By Friday, Ted Forsman's bidding group was ready to surface. At first, Hugel's special committee, wary about giving sensitive financial information to the consortium which included the company's toughest competitors, had balked at welcoming Forsman's group. What broke the logjam, however, was Hugel's realization that Forsman Little represented a fallback position in case Johnson and Kravis teamed up. Hugel was certain the two would join forces. It made too much sense. If so, Forsman's presence would keep the bidding alive. Ross Johnson slept late Saturday morning at his Atlanta home. Picking up the New York Times, his eyes were immediately drawn to a headline. Nabisco executives to take huge gains in their buyout. Johnson, who never viewed the management agreement as the symbol of greed others did, thought the story was so wild it wouldn't have any credibility. Besides, everyone knew the agreement was to be renegotiated. He called Linda Robinson, who tried to make Johnson grasp the scope of the dilemma they now faced. Ross, it's not a PR problem, it's a factual problem. You don't understand. You can't just tough this out. You're going to get killed on this thing. Johnson's phone rang off the hook that day. Charlie Hugel, who had read the story that morning at his Connecticut home, was also getting calls. His were from angry directors demanding an explanation from Johnson. If the Times report were true, the board risked looking like fools for not knowing about the agreement. Hugel called Johnson in Atlanta. Oh, Charlie, listen, Johnson said. It's horseshit. Don't believe a word of it. Hugel asked Johnson to send him a letter explaining things, and Johnson agreed. It began, Saturday's New York Times incorrectly implied that I and a few other members of management could earn excessive amounts under our group's buyout proposal. This is simply not the case, and I would like to set the record straight. Furthermore, he wrote, much of the equity the group would receive would be distributed to large numbers of employees. Charlie Hugel read Johnson's letter carefully. It was the first time Hugel had heard any mention of the employees receiving stock. Hugel thought Ross Johnson was lying. 